The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Big welcome to everyone. So it's a little bit of a buzz in the air in September, right? It's like we all feel like going back to school, getting our lives back together. People start to show back up at the Buddhist meditation centers. This time, I'm going to learn my lessons, change my life, and become perfect. And then we really suffer. <laughs> really, I bet, I bet it's true that there's no better way to cause ourselves suffering than to want to be perfect. I'm not kidding. I really think it's probably the easiest, most available cause for suffering is to want to be perfect, to want to be basically to achieve, to get somewhere where I'm beyond suffering. And so it's a setup a little bit, and often um, here at the center we take September and January just as a time to reflect, appropriately reflect, like what the heck are we doing here? Why would human beings be interested in awareness practice? It seems almost silly that human beings would have a center devoted to being mindfully aware, present here in the present moment. Because it just, like if I often joke, if we surveyed people, are you present? <laughs> Everyone's going to check yes. <laughs> so why would we need you know, a practice, a place, a tradition to cultivate mindful awareness? What's this all about? I mean, it's also true, I hope, maybe not, we wouldn't get 100% agreement, but we'd get a relatively high agreement if we went around surveying human beings, asking, like, are you vulnerable to stress? Are you vulnerable to, you know, your heart feeling burdened? doesn't matter by what, but just the heart feeling burdened, feeling weighted, feeling tight, upset, reactive, oppressed. We probably get, you know, a lot of us would probably say, yeah. And the people who say no, a lot of us would imagine that they just don't realize they're suffering. Right? Just because we don't think we're suffering doesn't mean we're not suffering. So we have places like this because we have enough stability in our lives, in our minds, to be honest with ourselves that there is some stress. And in a way, it's even more provocative an, an experience of feeling stress or feeling tight or feeling anxious or feeling needy or feeling heavy when we look at our conditions and they're, relatively speaking, pretty comfortable. And yet, our subjective experience is that this heart hurts. 
I mean, that's just how it is. It's undeniable to ourselves. Like, no, no, this heart hurts. I'm not saying it hurts all the time. And I'm not saying it hurts more than other people's hearts. I'm just saying that that's often our experience, even when conditions are pretty good. I know this one French Buddhist nun, Ajahn Sundara. Um, haven't spent time with her in a long time, but she's great. And uh, one of the things she wrote that I really liked in one of her articles is uh, something like this is a paraphrase. You're really maturing as a spiritual being when you realize that even getting what you want is stressful. Right? Now, I'm not saying that all of us know that experience, but I bet if you start reflecting that even when you get what you want, it's stressful, let alone getting what you don't want. When is our heart, like, have you noticed, like, when you're really happy, that there's also some stress in that experience? Like, even the stress of, what do I do with all this joy? Like, is it okay for me to be happy? Or should I be a little careful about that? You know, I don't want to make other people feel badly that I'm so happy. Let alone things like, will it last? Or what will be next? Sometimes when we get something we've wanted for a long time, all of a sudden we are, now we have to be afraid of losing what we've gained, whatever that might be. Before we had it, we didn't have to worry about that. A lot of the meanness, the mean-spiritedness, we find not only in this country, but just everywhere, really, is because some people have some privilege, have some comfort, and they're afraid of losing it. So we start acting out of that fear. You know, and that's not so pleasant, even though it is nice to be comfortable and to have some you know, affluence or some safety, some you know, dependable shelter, dependable food, dependable orderliness around us. It isn't comfortable to be afraid of losing it. So it's really useful, like, if we had time, you know, there's maybe a hundred of us in the room or so, if we had time to hear the hundred different ways that we were drawn to the practice of awareness, this practice that originated with the Buddha's teachings about how potent it is to cultivate this balanced present moment awareness, how amazingly transforming it is. It'd be interesting just to hear all the stories because it just seems like there's so many more interesting things to do with our time than, like I said, to, to practice. I mean, we're, we're here really, what we do mostly here, and there are different supporting mental qualities that we cultivate. But basically, we're training the mind to be aware, right? to remember, to recognize, to remember, to be aware that this 
experiences being known. This reflective awareness that, oh yeah, it's, it's like this. This is what the mind is knowing right now. This is what's being felt right now. So I want to, maybe for a couple of weeks, I won't be here next Wednesday. Um, I'll be teaching out of town on the West Coast. But for the other Wednesdays in September, I will just come back to this question, this basic motivation that draws human beings to the practice of awareness, to cultivating a mind that can sustain present moment awareness. Both clarifying like, What's the draw? And of course, related to that, what's the effect? What inspires us? And then what's the effect? And then in that, we'll talk a lot about well, how we do that. Like how do we strengthen that mental muscle, that spiritual muscle maybe even, of, being, of cultivating this continuity of present moment awareness. The way the Buddha assessed the predicament of us human beings is that just the way our mind operates in our lives is, and this shouldn't be a shock to any of us, it's superficial, we're often overwhelmed, busy, and uh, there are a lot of habit energies, and one of them is just relating to experience in a relatively superficial way Because a lot of experience, a lot of our experience is somewhat familiar. We've done it before. So there's this unconscious assumption. I don't really need to be intimate. Like even right now, a lot of you have been to Common Ground many times before. And so even though you had to, you know, a lot of you had to do stuff to get here. You know, you had to travel some distance or arrange your schedule or decide not to do other things. But even though we've gotten ourselves here undertaken the, the burden of getting ourselves here, there can be a lot of unconscious justification. I don't really need to be here now that I'm here. I feel good that I got myself here, but I can get lost in thought. I can fantasize. I can think about what I'm going to do tomorrow. I don't really need to commit, be devoted to being here when I'm here in this moment. I kind of get what Mark's talking about. So I don't really need to be in the moment in a vivid, curious, undefended, receptive way. I can instead depend on the thoughts I have about where I think this talk is going. You know, and it's sort of like we categorize so much of our experience as, I got this. What else can I do with my mind? What else can I remember or think about or plan or figure out or react to or worry about or you know, whatever it might be? So the Buddha's assessment is that you know, human beings basically, unless the person is really out of balance, human beings want to be happy. We want to make choices or live in ways that support that sense of well-being, right? Ease or relaxation, both in the body and mind, in the heart. But because of these chronic habits of misperception, 
and superficiality and distractedness, the mind's connection or the mind's understanding of the way it is is so, you know, fragmented, distracted or incomplete or off that the choices we make, in particular the choices we make about how we conceive of what's going on or how we conceive of who I am or what's happening, those conceptions, those ideas about what this is, who I am, what's happening here, they're so off because the quality of present moment awareness is superficial, distracted, fragmented, not deep, not actually, there's not that sort of that what is we know is possible, but often not the case, that balanced breadth and depth and continuity of awareness. We just don't have that. So oftentimes how we are in the world, the choices we're making, the attitudes we're living out of, just don't line up with life. And so there's this incongruency between how we're understanding how we're relating, how we're understanding, and the way life is. And so, because of the disconnect, our life doesn't seem to work very well. We're trying to see if this is true. I mean, again, this would be, it would be very useful to check in with each other. Is it true that I do want to be happy and a lot of my efforts to be happy don't lead to happiness, haven't led to happiness. That humility is actually worth quite a bit. Knowing that we want to be happy, but having some humility that I haven't actually figured out. Like, assuming we live in a lawful universe, so there's a way to lawfully participate in the moment to support happiness, ease, the release of the burdened heart. Well, if, we've, if we had figured that out, we'd be feeling pretty good and we probably wouldn't have come here tonight. So we're here because we haven't figured it out and we're curious about how to be a happy person, how to live in a way, in a compassionate way, an engaged way, an enlivened way, a peaceful way. And so the Buddha's analysis is, well, the, the problem isn't that the world sucks or the world is bad or the world has screwed me over, even though that seems like a pretty compelling argument and moments in our lives. But he, it's sort of a radical notion that the problem is the way the mind, the knowing mind, let's say, is showing up the way the mind is understanding, the way the mind is being aware, that it's off in the sense that it's superficial or it's distracted or the way of being present is distorted by habits, like to imagine that things are solid or permanent or fixed or to imagine the projections of good versus bad, pleasant versus unpleasant. I'm not saying that things aren't pleasant and unpleasant, but what my mind does with pleasant 
what my mind makes of unpleasant, that maybe it isn't exactly as it appears when my mind is superficial or distracted or kind of seeing things under frames that we picked up through culture, through our cultural conditioning. So the Buddha puts a lot of energy and you know, inspiring us that, hey, hey folks, check this out. There is a way to develop this capacity to be present in a balanced way, in a stable way, in a continuous way that is moving in the direction of less distraction, less superficiality, so both the depth and breadth of awareness of the present moment. And that will change how you're relating to what comes and goes in your life in the moment, pleasant experiences and unpleasant experiences, internal and external experiences. The mind starts to relate then from this balanced, stable, clear, non-judging or non-reactive even, And even if there is reactivity or judgment, then awareness, that stability of awareness can even see that too. Oh yeah, that's right, reactivity being known. And the Buddha proposes that that really changes things. And then he says, check it out. Because it doesn't do any good for us to think, oh, the Buddha knew what he was talking about. I can go home, you know, and I'll just know that the Buddha was right. We actually have to cultivate, we have to often sit down, but there are other ways to do it. You can stand up and do it. You can do it while you're walking. You can basically do it any time, but we sit down often in a formal way and meditate because we have to create this form where the time that we're committing is really about developing this one muscle, mental muscle, the continuity of this stable present moment awareness. Because we're checking out whether the intervention the Buddha came up with actually makes a difference in our life. Does it? And this is the nice thing to ask people who, you know, when you're chatting with people before or after programs here, introducing yourself, you might bump into people who've been doing this for a while. That's really okay to ask them, well, you've been doing it for a while. Has it made a difference? That's not an embarrassing question. So you've, you've been doing it for a while and you've noticed no difference. So why are you doing it? Right? I mean, that's a good question. And if we're one of those people who've been doing it for a while and we haven't noticed any difference, that's a good question to ask ourselves. Well, what am I missing is this lawful, what we're up, uh, up to here? Does it set something in motion when we're cultivating the stability of present moment awareness? I mean, one thing we start to see right away, we just finished some people here in the room, we're on the nine-day retreat that Shelley Graff and I just finished over at uh, Metta Meditation Center, a little bit out of town, 70 miles out of town, a really nice, Buddhist Meditation Center, Retreat Center. And um, you know, one of the things we see on retreat is just how the habits of our mind, ordinary habits of mind, which we normally wouldn't notice during an ordinary day, 
But in the relative seclusion and simplicity of a Buddhist meditation retreat, silent meditation retreat, we really notice how many of our mental habits are tormenting. Even something relatively simple like wanting to plan something. But we see it in a way when things are more simple as a tormenting habit. Like it's one thing to plan something once, but that the mind going back as if it's feeding on that habit of planning something. As if it's going to find some kind of security by thinking it through one more time. Or worrying about something. Or regurgitating some memory. Or fantasizing about something. So these very ordinary mental activities, which we just think nothing about in our normal, distracted, superficial mode, but when we're in a more meditative mode, where we're being a little bit more honest and we're feeling a little bit more sensitive, noticing the impact of mental activity, like habits of planning, worrying, we really start to more honestly acknowledge how much of our mental habits aren't helpful. And they arise because the mind superficially thinks they're helpful. But when we start to see that they're not helpful, things begin to change. And also another thing we begin to recognize, just as we observe the mind, is that a lot of the habits of mind arise from this particular point of view. So one of the things the Buddha suggests is, not in a dogmatic way, but why don't you, as you're noticing what's happening in the mind and body in the present moment, you're just acknowledging, oh yeah, thinking, reacting, worrying, knee pain, hearing, seeing, you're just acknowledging, like we did during the 35-minute sit, what the mind is knowing, now the mind is knowing this, this is being known, this is being known, this is being felt, this is being seen. We start to sense what else is there. In Buddhism, sometimes we call it selfing. Sort of just this very ordinary, pervasive, view or frame that this experience is happening to me or whatever's going on refers back to me. It's about me. It's about the me that wants to be happy or the me that wants to be good or the me that wants to understand or the me that wants to be a good meditator or the me that wants to be liked by other people or the me that's tired of it all and just wants some escape, some freedom from it all we start to notice the pervasiveness of that self-framing. Whatever experience we're having, even if I'm obsessing about another person in the room, when we, we notice it always involves me, like me who's obsessing about this person, me who really wants to understand who that person is, me who wants to steer clear of that person, or me who wants to get to know that person, or me who just doesn't care about that person. We start, in Buddhist terms, in a way, we connect the dots. We start to see how a lot of these mental activities of distractedness and judging 
and worrying and planning and remembering and fantasizing, which are not toxic or bad in and of themselves, but when they're combined with the self-framing, it really leads to this heavy impact on our hearts, this tight impact. And that's, that's really the essence of the Buddha's insight that he shared you know, for 45 years when he was alive, he taught. Right? So he had this kind of awakening, this, these insights when he was around 35, and then he taught for about 45 years, or give or take. And you know, it's pretty impressive that 2,600 years later, these reflections on his own mind and what he had come to understand still reverberate, still are useful for us you know, in a different time, different culture. And the real essence is that the self-framing around the experiences that are being known, interpreting all the experiences that are being known, mental experiences, physical experiences like sight and sound and touch, smell and taste, and all the cognitive or mental experiences that are being known with emotion being sort of a combination of mental and physical, right? These are, this is what we know. We know bodily and, and mental activity, right? That's what we know. That's our whole, that's the totality of our experience. It's some combination of the five physical senses being known and then mental activity being known, right? And this is the insight and this more subtle part of the mental activity, what you could call view or the way the mind frames this experience of the body and mind, the selfing, right, makes things tight and heavy and the impact stressful. So pleasant experience has a kind of impact not because the pleasant not because the experience is pleasant so for example my new one of my new sense delights is cuz i i try to avoid um, causing suffering when i can when i can stay awake to it so i you know it's nice when i can get my favorite sense delight that doesn't involve uh animals being misused. So there's a new Ben and Jerry's Chunky Monkey, I think it's called. Is that what it is? Is that the banana one? Yeah, 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 that's the one. (laughs) And it's vegan, right? So, ooh. (laughs) And it's expensive, which means I don't get it as often as I probably would otherwise, right? So that's also good. What was I going to say? Oh, yeah. (laughs) So there's nothing, this is good for me, nothing inherently wrong with the pleasantness of Chunky Monkey, right? But when it becomes, when there becomes the somebody who's dependent on it, then all of a sudden the pleasantness of Chunky Monkey, and even the pleasantness of knowing there is Chunky Monkey, you know, at the co-op, which is not so far away. (laughs) 
the pleasantness of knowing there's chunky monkey, the pleasantness of eating chunky monkey, only becomes unpleasant when there's a somebody who's dependent on chunky monkey. But can we be in a world of sense pleasures without a somebody dependent on sense pleasures? And can, now the other side of it, you know, can we be aware in a world of sense pain without being burdened, without being the somebody who's afraid and burdened? Whether it's like the big one, death, you know, the death of our loved ones, the death of our own, this own, this body here, or more ordinary pains in life like disappointment or loss or insults that come our way, microaggressions, people, you know, kind of acting out their own ignorance at our expense. So when that comes our way, a Buddha, right, a awake human being, because they're awake, they know, oh, it's like this now. It hurts like this. But the way they relate to the pain is in that direct and honest and simple way. It hurts like this now. It's unpleasant like this. What is pain without personalizing the pain? What is it to experience? I mean, you can even, if you don't know, then just pinch yourself. It doesn't have to be a big pain. It's actually better to, to practice with more simple unpleasant experiences. Maybe you have some knee pain, you don't have to pinch yourself. Or maybe you have some loss, recent loss that's still reverberating in your heart that you can tune into. Or just some generic anxiety, uneasiness that's often accessible. So what is, what is it to be intimate, to be willing to see, see that experience as it is without bothering to construct or to believe the construction that somebody's burdened, somebody doesn't like. And the way we do that is with awareness. So if there is a person who doesn't like that anxiety or doesn't like the ouch of the pinch, the unpleasantness of the pinch, then that is also seen as just something being known. We're not saying that isn't me, and we're not saying that is me. We're just saying that that experience is what it is. The unpleasantness is what it is. The not liking, if that's there, the not liking is just that experience of not liking. We're getting out of the habit of making the experience more than what it is. It's only a habit, selfing, personalizing things. It's just a habit. It's a distorting habit. So the training of mindful awareness, or you could even call it, some people do sometimes, bear attention, simple awareness, things just as they are, it really means being open, being clearly aware, so present, so willing to be intimate, that the mind isn't bothering to do its deep old habit 
which is to interpret the experience in terms of a presumed me. So then everything has an impact on that constructed sense of me. Ouch, I don't like, why am I pinching myself? I don't want to feel my anxiety. That's why I came to Common Ground. You know, I don't want to remember this loss, it hurts. So let me think about it so I don't have to feel it. Right? A lot of times we obsessively think about things that are painful because it appears wrongly that we get some distance from the pain. But we're just distracted from the pain. We're not paying attention to the pain. The pain's still there. We're just not noticing it because we're obsessing about the thoughts about it or whatever thoughts we're thinking about. But there's this more, there is this more honest approach, which is to realize that experience is just what it is. And that's really the essence of the, uh, the Buddhist teachings. This cultivation of this balanced, stable, clear, broad and deep, continuous present moment awareness is a way of interrupting what the mind would otherwise do, which would basically, without us really knowing we're doing it, because it's such a pervasive habit of the mind, everything would be interpreted in the way the mind is in the habit of interpreting it. And mostly what we call living our life is we're relating to our interpretation of our life. We're not actually relating to the moment as it is. In real time, moment by moment, the mind is interpreting our experience from the self-centered point of view, and that's actually what we relate to. We have this relationship with the mind's ongoing self-centered interpretation of what's coming and going in our life. Sights, sounds, sensations, you know, the experiences, mental, physical experiences. And this unseen, but most important thing, which is the mind's interpretation of that dance of mental and physical experience. And there's a very chronic habit in the way the mind interprets experience to itself. And that's that self-centered framing. So to break that habit, The Buddha doesn't suggest another frame, really. He suggests, or if you want to call it a frame, just being aware. Practice being intimate in this balanced and whole way. So whole, you know, mindful, so whole, so present, so there with the breath, with the walking, with the seeing, with the feeling, the sensation of the body sitting, with the movement of emotion as something being known, that the mind doesn't really have any bandwidth, any space to do that self-centered interpretation. And if it does have enough space to construct a sense of self that's having the experience, then Awareness can learn to see that as just something being known too. Oh yeah, that's just that selfing that the mind does. That self-centered drama. Like an example, a very common example for many of us is the oh poor me. That's like how the mind 
something is happening and the mind interprets what's happening in a self-centered frame. Oh, poor me, this is happening to me. Or another common thing is, I'm so glad that's happening to you and not to me. (laughs) That's also a self-centered frame. You know, we read the news or listen to the news and we go, oh, that's really too bad. I am so glad that's not happening to me. So when that self-centered framing happens, we don't need to be embarrassed or try to stop it. We just see it from a non-self-centered frame. That's just that thought being known. And it feels like this. looks like this. It's just that. We don't try to go back to not doing what we just did because that would be another self-centered move, like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. That was self-centered, right? But that also is self-centered, thinking that I shouldn't have done that. So we have to break the cycle. There's only one thing that breaks the cycle, which is being aware, so fully, wholly present with the breath, with the body, with sight, with sound, with thought, just this being known, just this being known, non-judging, when that habit gains some momentum, then we really break that self-centered habit. We get little glimpses, but you really sense there's a particular taste when the mind is somewhat free of that habit. And that's the taste of freedom or lightness. We really get a sense of how it is to be a human being when the heart or the mind isn't being oppressed by the oppressive habit of self-centered drama, self-centeredness. That separateness, that all that existential angst that arises because of the self-centered framing. So when we're in those places, you know one of the places we sense that is when we're happy you know, we, we're motivated when we're unhappy, right? We have a lot of motivation to cultivate mindful awareness because we're desperate for anything that might work. And it is good to practice when we're suffering or things are hard for us. But it's also really good to practice when we're feeling really good because you might get a, it might be easier, like when you're feeling that sense of well-being and you drop, any ownership of the pleasantness, you know, that nice feeling of well-being. It's just feeling peaceful or just feeling easeful or just the feeling, the experience of being relaxed. And you really open to it. It's relatively easy to open to the pleasantness of home, a relatively good day. You're sitting down. You don't have anything you have to do that evening. You're just relaxing. And really noticing the relaxation and just like being curious, like feeling good is like this. It's just this nice, I don't need to add anything or put a spin on the feeling good. Like, how can I make this last? Or what would make this even nicer? You notice that like when you're feeling really good, you finally got home, you're sitting, you're relaxed. And then it's like, Instead of just being intimate with the pleasantness of sitting on the chair, what's in the fridge? There's a kind of restlessness, like how could this be better? 
how can I have more of these moments? Should I change my job? Right? Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't think about these things at times, but it's just like really interesting how we've been looking for this moment for 10 hours, looking forward to this moment for 10 hours, and then it arrives, and we're not there. You know where we really notice this is we finally get on a nice vacation, and we're not there when we're there. We're thinking about the next vacation or thinking about how the vacation could be better instead of really appreciating the sights, the sounds, the sensations, the whatever that make that experience what it is in that moment. Being intimate, so intimate the mind isn't bothering framing the experience in terms of a me with its likes and its dislikes, its hopes and its fears but just taking the experience as it is. And we really taste some freedom. So we'll come back to this in a couple weeks when I'm back in town, but I wanted to save a little time because, you know, like I mentioned a couple times, we're sort of experts about why we're interested in mindful awareness. And we have our own experience of the value of this continuity of present moment awareness, how it does resolve the basic problem of our heart being burdened. And it'd be nice to hear a few testimonials and also questions that have come out of your practice that you'd like to bring up. Please don't be shy. And it's nice to share your name too. And we, do, we are recording tonight, so we do put up the talks on the internet if that matters in terms of you sharing your questions or comments. So who'd like to begin? What comes to mind with questions, with experiences that seem relevant to what I've been saying tonight? Thank you. Hi, my name is AJ. Um, So you spoke about selfing, and I've kind of been doing that and kind of noticing how I relate to situations, you know, as me and how it affects me. And so my question is, I've been taking that towards, like, thinking about it with other people. So if I'm in a a situation that's kind of volatile with someone at work, I'm thinking, oh, that's suffering. That's they're trying to take control or that's, you know, some some kind of thing that I'm, I'm seeing what's happening there. But I'm starting to think like maybe that's not necessary. Like maybe that's me creating a whole nother story and it's taking me away from maybe I should be talking to someone about this volatile situation. Maybe this isn't healthy. So just if you have any input about that. Because, for example, in in what AJ, the example that AJ gave where there's some difficult interactions going on at work, you know, the practice can always be used in an unhelpful way where it's masquerading. Um, It's really fear, like fear of taking care of ourselves or fear of speaking up in a place where maybe that's a skillful thing to do. So we use that sort of Dharma phrase, well, they're just doing the best they can, or they're just acting out their own self-centered habits. They can't, can't be other than what it is right now. Both can be true. Like That may be true, but how is the mind relating to that recognition that they're just caught up in their own self-drama, right? And are you relating to that in a way that sort of allows the mind to avoid what is scary? 
like saying something. But because that fear that you might fear, feel, right, that's just fear being known. You don't have to interpret the unpleasantness of fear of taking care of yourself, sticking your neck out a little bit. You don't need to interpret that fear as more than what it is. It's just a little information, impersonal information, like it could be easy to act in a way that's unskillful here, right? So be careful. But that doesn't say not to say something. It just says be awake, right? Take care of yourself, take care of everybody, be awake. It's easy to cause harm. A lot of fear is basically only saying that, honey, pay attention. This is a kind of place where it's easy to cause harm for ourselves and others. Please pay attention. Please be sensitive. Don't go to sleep. Don't fall back into old habits. Oh, I'm not going to say anything. Right? And a lot of times we have to hold it like if our you know, we know our tendency. So if our tendency is to be quiet, then we, we create a little tension like, oh yeah, that's just that tendency. I don't need to be confused. I can see that tendency as a tendency. It's just another thing being known. It's not wisdom. It's just a habit. And how will I know what to do? I stay intimate. I stay connected. I stay curious. I practice being willing to feel what I'm feeling, including the fear of speaking up, including the force that's saying this is not okay, something has to be done, right? We let it all kind of move and we practice seeing it for what it is. It's stuff being felt, it's stuff being seen, it's thoughts being known. And here's the real amazing thing. Instead of like, I've got to figure out what to do here, that's not actually true. Actions will arise. The more we emphasize being intimate with the present moment, the more you'll notice whatever you end up doing is just going to be coming out of that intimacy. It will be, there will be more skillful comments, actions, or whatever, precisely because we were willing to feel into the moment, open up to the moment. Just try it. Try it in your intimate relationships and try it in terms of activism and trying to make the world a better place and dealing with your children and your job situations. When there's a place that seems to be demanding a response, don't deny that intuition or that clarity that, oh yeah, something needs to be done here, but have a different intervention. Well, let me really relax. Let me be really curious, willing to be open. Let me acknowledge everything that's moving, everything that's being felt, everything that's being seen. Let's let everything be on the table here. So you're not for action and you're not against action. You don't presume that you should know what to do. Instead, you presume, I'll never know with certainty what should be done. So I'm not waiting for certainty. That actually really frees us up, knowing that we'll never know, I should get married to this person or I should immediately leave this person. We'll never know. And that's so liberating to know that we're not going to know. 
because then it's more like whatever we end up doing, we'll try to live in a way, act in a way that turns it into something that's useful, skillful. But it's not over. It's just now I'm doing this. Now I'm saying this. Okay, now what? So we're, it's like learning to operate in life without a plan. I mean, we can plan. It's okay to plan. We will plan. But we know that the plan isn't really the truth. It's just mostly to kind of make a sort of mask or fear that I'm not comfortable knowing that I don't know. But we can train the mind to get comfortable knowing that we don't know. It's like today was amazing. One thing after another conspired that I couldn't prepare for this talk. You know? But it's sometimes it's okay. That's just how life is. We're just not prepared. And then something else happens. You know, then we but to presume we should have a plan, you know, sometimes is unnecessary suffering. It's not needed. Thanks for starting us off, AJ. Yeah, who'd like to go next? Hi, uh, my name's Dan, and uh, my question doesn't relate to either of your prompts, so um, keep it quick. But I was wondering if you could talk briefly a little bit more about um, causes of suffering and hierarchy of needs. Hierarchy of needs? Yeah, um, just um, at the beginning of uh, your talk, um, said something that made me think of that I'm... Um, you know, the proximate cause of suffering is always the experience of suffering, um, but maybe like an ultimate cause of suffering is something like, or a proximate cause of hunger is the experience of hunger, but the ultimate cause is lack of food, which might be caused by forgetting to eat in the morning or external conditions. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so as a living being, we have natural desires for shelter, for food, for warmth, for, you know, as humans, social being a social being, for connection with others, being, belonging. So these, these desires, it's, a, it's an actual movement. I mean, we can feel the movement of hunger, the desire for food. We can feel the movement of companionship, connection with another. So th- this shouldn't be a surprise. And it, it's really the cause of suffering is how we interpret that movement of desire, what the mind does with desire. So if we, let's talk about a primal one, like the movement of hunger. And there's some awareness of that movement of hunger. Well, let's say, you know, theoretically, a wise person experiencing that movement of hunger will know there is this movement of hunger being known, being felt, right? They're going to know that. And if there's something they can do about it without causing undue harm of others, or maybe it does involve some harm of others, right? But they'll do it. But if there's nothing in that moment to do, then a wise person will know there's really nothing for me to do about this hunger in this moment because I'm trapped in a situation where there's no possibility of food, right? So I'm, there's nothing for me to do. But whether there's something for me to do or nothing for me to do, there's no point in getting tight 
or the heart getting bound up about this desire for food. So I don't need to, but if I interpret the desire for food as a me who needs food, then if there's no food available right now, I can freak out. But the freaking out doesn't make food happen. It just makes the body-mind tight. Or if, I, if there is something I can do, but I'm concerned that somebody's going to get more food than me, right? and I can get tight about that. Or I'll be eating, and I'll get tight that there are people without food. But that doesn't feed those other people. Me getting really tight because other people aren't eating, and I do have food to eat. I'm not saying we shouldn't do something about people who don't have enough food. I'm just saying that getting tight when we're eating because other people aren't eating doesn't help. It's actually contributing to suffering. It's not alleviating suffering. So if you're really concerned about the people who aren't eating, then that's just another desire that's moving. Like the des- It's a more sophisticated or like you were talking about a hier- hierarchy of needs. A hierarchy of need is but let's say my more base needs are being met. I'm, hung, I'm fed, I have shelter, I have good friends and companionship. And I realize there are a lot of people who are suffering. And I realize I have a desire to alleviate the suffering if there's something I can do. Okay, is there something I can do? Well, let's do it. If there's nothing I can do in this moment to alleviate the suffering of others, then... Presumably, there's nothing I can do, but I'll stay awake. Maybe there is, and I just haven't recognized it yet. But in either case, I'm not going to get tight. Because getting tight, because there are people suffering, and there's something I can do, or there's suffering, and there's nothing I can do, the getting tight doesn't make us a better activist or a better you know, compassionate human being. Yeah, thanks, Dan, for sharing that. I think we have to leave it here. It's 9 o'clock. Let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Just enough time for one or two breaths together. And really appreciate the silence for a few more seconds. We don't even need to grasp any of these teachings. Some of it will have landed and maybe a lot of it won't, but that's okay. Thanks for coming, everyone. Really nice to be here together. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website www.commongroundmeditation.org